this is the second lecture um, recording for uh, orientalism the the name of the chapter is the scope of orientalism as you guys remember it's divided into four parts the second part of this particular chapter is called imagined geographies and that's the section that i want to talk about today um the exact title of the second section which in this uh, which in my book begins on page number 49 and since i think most of you have the photocopy of the same book uh, this begins at the bottom of page number 49 and i just want to spend a little time talking about um, the actual title of the section which is imagined imagined geographies and its representations orientalizing the orient now the term uh, imagined geographies is one which is actually originate uh, it it originates in literary theory and in critical thinking from this particular section in said's uh, book orientalism and said talks about it in other places also directly as well as indirectly um, and uh, the reason why i want to talk about it is because it's, it's very important and it li- links said um, to uh, you know especially to uh, fuko Uh, in what way i'm going to talk about it in a minute but also because this is central to how um you know said tries to understand how the orient or orientalism per se as disciplines have they existed for the longest of the times because this geographical distinction between what the east is and what the west is that has existed for a very long time and that distinction between exactly what the east is and what uh you know uh, and how the west has to understand the east has got almost nothing to do with the actual geographical place which is called so called the east so the limitations of the geography or limitations of what is included in that one term east it has changed uh through history but um but as said shows in the you know in in this particular section as well um writers as uh, as ancient as homer or as aeschylus when they uh, even when they wrote there was a very marked difference in between the east and the inhabitants of the east even if the even if the geographical limitations of what that east was were different at the time and they're different now but even so the the you know the um um the linking of the east with the uncivilized brutish um you know part of the world and with the west as the as a representative of or even the harbinger of civilization into its own realms and into the east eastern uh, you know sort of geographies that is very very clear but we're going to go that in uh, go go into it in about a minute's time so the way that said actually talks about imagined geographies here imagined does not mean that it's it's made up that it's imaginary or that it's false in any way but here imagined actually means perceived how it is understood and how it is uh, you know sort of conceptualized in that sense so the term refers to the perception of space created through um, you know certain imagery texts and or discourses so in the first section of the essay if you remember through the um you know through the speeches of belfort and cromer and through a reference to the journals um you know through a discussion of what orientalism has been um since the you know since the last quarter of or since the second half of the 18th century and primarily in the 20th century 
Saeed has tried to sort of um, create an idea of what Orientalism is today and how it gets its validation from mainstream politicians, from mainstream texts like Belfort's speech and, uh, you know, like other texts. Uh, in this particular section, uh, Saeed is talking about how the geographical aspect of the Orient, what the actual place is and what it is perceived to be are in a lot of, uh, you know, in, in a lot of places there not only are they different but in a lot of places they are also constantly contesting facts. But at the same time, according to Saeed, it doesn't matter for the West that the Orient or the East is not an actual place, but it's a place, but it's the idea of a place as perceived and as imagined by the West. So there are two important points that Saeed is making here. One is the fact that the Orient as an actual geographical place has very little value because it's the idea of the Orient that the West uses all the time. And the second is that in defining the, in defining the Orient the way that the East can do so carelessly, so casually and so, um, you know, uh, in such a standardized and, um, um, you know, continuous sort of way, the idea of the West or the idea of the Orient does not change at all starting from the time of Homer till the 20th century. That idea doesn't change. So the Orient then becomes an imagined place and because the West can define it with so much authority, it actually is a symptom of the kind of power that the West has over the Orient to be able to keep on defining it as an abstraction, as an idea constantly over and over again which cannot be refuted even when it is compared with the real place it doesn't matter what the real orient is and when you compare the way that the west uh, sort of looks at the orient um, and then you see that there's so much disjunction in how the occident looks at the orient even then this perceived or this imagined orient does not actually change and that is the power of discourse that Saeed is sort of talking about so in that sense imagined geographies can be seen as a form of social construction which is concomitant with the idea of imagined communities and imagined communities is a concept as well as a book which is written by another uh, fairly important um, political thinker by the name of Benedict Anderson for those of you who are interested Benedict Anderson actually published a book uh, by the same name called Imagined Communities in 1983 uh, which talks about how nationalism and the nation as a concept is also an imagined geography but that's a different thing altogether the book actually comes after uh, Said's Orientalism but the idea is still there and they are coterminous in terms of you know the theoretical um, structures but also, uh, you know, um, sort of Foucault talks about the relationship between power and knowledge. And Said sort of takes it, um, you know, a little further. And he talks, about, um, he talks about the relationship between power and description, right? So the, the knowledge of something or the description of something, that is the difference between how Foucault looks at, you know, the way in which power operates and Said looks at it. And, he, and he's trying to say that, you know, with the kind of uh, political and economic power that the West has always had on the Orient. So it has had the power also to describe the Orient. So in that sense, knowledge would only come with the real encounter of the Orient. 
but in the absence of that kind of a real encounter an imagined description of the orient can also be, can also sort of take place and that is what said is talking about and because the power of this description lies with the occident then of course the the power which foucault associates with knowledge said says that that kind of power can also be exercised and that kind of power can also be represented through the kind of um you know biased descriptions that abound about the east um in the in, in the discourses of the west so that is uh, very important and that's a very important aspect of imagined geography so in that sense imagined geographies um, are thus they also seen as tools of power as means of controlling and subordinating areas it also shows clearly who has the right to objectify those who are being imagined and of course it's the orient which is being objectified and the power to imagine the orient is with the uh, occident and imagined geographies uh, they're mostly based on myths and legends so in that sense um, it, it makes it, it makes uh, it makes it clear uh, you know the kind of things that uh, said is going to discuss in this particular session uh, in this particular section he is going to talk about how the uh, space of the orient is being imagined and how myths and legends help in propagating these kind of uh, you know assertions so he talks about very very interestingly there's a whole section where he talks about how um, you know prophet muhammad is constantly seen as a fake jesus christ and uh, the myth of christianity as well as the mythology which is associated with islam they are both sort of seen as mirror mirror uh, you know sort of uh, mirroring images of each other where in christianity is of course the true faith and islam is usually seen as a faith which mirrors christianity but of course in a very uh, superficial and non genuine way so that is very very important right um so on page number 50 i'm just going to talk about um and and he talks about um, you know how um you know uh, orientalism as a field of learned study um in the christian west orientalism is considered to have commenced its formal existence with the decision of the church council of vienna in 1312 as early as 1312 even though said is going to give um, you know talk about examples far earlier than this also but as early as 1312 chairs in arabic greek hebrew and syriac at paris oxford bologna avignon and salamanca were set up and all of these places were supposed to study the uh, you know they they were supposed to study the orient but uh, uh, you know uh, the next paragraph which begins on page number 50 also has a very important and a very interesting um, point to make he says this is the second uh, line to speak of scholarly specialization as a geographical field is in this uh, you know is in the case of orientalism fairly revealing since no one is likely to imagine a field uh, symmetrical to it called occidentalism um, there are two very interesting things to note here one is of course the fact that orientalism um, is described as the negation of occidentalism but at the same time uh, one uh, you know because orientalism is a geographical definition so everybody who lives in the orient is an orient in that in the geographical space of the orient everybody who belongs to a particular regional culture so everybody who belongs to syria everybody who belongs to the palestine the middle east 
India, China, and so on and so forth. Right. So these are geographical definitions. But at the same time, even though the Orient is defined as a negative of the Occident, there is no discussion of there are no chairs of Occidentalism, and that is very interesting according to Sayed because the fact of the being of the Occident is taken for granted. You assume that normative of the world is the Occident, and just by studying the negative of the of the Occident, which is the Orient, right? By studying about how they are deficient, they are uncivilized, and so on and so forth. You're already dialectically sort of creating the opposite of what the Orient is not, right? Um, and the opposite of the Orient is, of course, the Occident. So there is no need of studying the Orient, Occident per se. That is one thing. The other thing is also, of course, the fact that um, you know, if the Orient is defined as a geographical unit, as we talked about in the last section, also. As the definition of the Orient keeps on changing, so the definition of the Occident also keeps on changing. But at the same time, that kind of a geographical delineation of the Occident also does not need to be specified. For example, in the very introduction, Said talks about how uh, throughout history, uh, you know, for example, um, during the golden ages of Greek and Latin literature. Uh, the time when people like Aeschylus or Euripides were writing, uh, the time um, you know when uh, the the story of the of, of King Oedipus was being written, for example, right? From where the idea of um, Oedipus complex actually comes in. Uh, at that time, uh, Greece as well as Rome, they were the primary occidents, right? And the Latin um, and and uh, Let's not get into the specifics of the geographies, but what was defined as the Orient was completely different. We'll talk about it in a little bit when we talk about Aeschylus's plays. Uh, after that, uh, after the, in in the uh, in the industrial age, uh, Britain and France they became the Occidents, and what was defined as the Orient then changed. After that, now in the twentieth century, America has become the center of the idea or the identity of the Occident. And the Orient has again, to only a certain extent, now undergone uh, some more change. But in that sense, even though the Occident, uh, the the geographical location of the Occident keeps on changing, and yet the basic identity of the Occident doesn't change, just like the basic identity of the Orient doesn't change. And that is what Saeed is talking about. But if you remember from the introduction essay, uh, the fact that Saeed. Uh, takes the definitions of these two categories to be stable is something that a lot of critics later on uh, have criticized Said for and uh, very very rigorously so Ajaz Ahmed is one of them um, and Humi Baba is another and I talked about it in the introduction uh, to Orientalism essay when I discussed the uh, review of Orientalism by Leela Gandhi. If you guys have not heard it, please you should definitely go go back and listen to it again. So anyway, at the bottom of page number, uh, page number 50 uh, there's a very important line um, where uh, Said says, and this is sort of in the middle actually of the uh, paragraph which begins with, to speak of scholarly specialization as a geographical field is, that's what I just quoted. So somewhere in the middle of it, there's a very interesting line which I think you guys should definitely take a note of. But Orientalism is a field with considerable geographical ambition. And since Orientalists have traditionally occupied themselves with things Oriental, a specialist in Islamic law, no less than an expert in Chinese dialects or Indian religions, is considered an Orientalist by people who call themselves Orientalists. 
we must learn to accept enormous indiscriminate size plus an almost infinite capacity for subdivision and so on and so forth. So he is saying that uh, being an orientalist is no mean feat because if you look at the range of the geographical mass which the which the word orient actually includes or it refers to it's a huge land mass and uh, so it is um, it is a term with far reaching consequences but it can be sort of glossed over and it can be made homogeneous in a certain sense precisely because it is not the center of the power and that's what Said is sort of trying to talk about. The ism in Orientalism serves to insist on the distinction of this discipline from every other kind. So in that sense he says that um, the, the historical development of this particular discipline unlike all other disciplines is that the scope of Orientalism keeps on increasing. Now, the rest of science or the other disciplines in the 20th century have moved more and more and more and more and more towards narrow specializations in all fields, whether it is medicine. Earlier, you could be a general practitioner or earlier you could be a doctor and perform surgery as well. Now, the surgeons are different from doctors. The you know, even amongst the surgeons, there's a hierarchy. A heart surgeon is going to be a different from another kind or a brain surgeon. And even amongst them, you know, there are people who have specializations for different kinds of surgeries, brain surgeries. So in that sense, if you look at every other discipline, whereas other disciplines move more and more towards specializations, which become narrower and narrower, Orientalism sort of moves, according to Said, towards a, you know a greater generalization. If you can talk about the Middle East, which means you can, that means you can talk about Syria, about Palestine, about um, you know the Arab world, the the rest of the Arab world, and so on and so forth. So he says that's that's one very strange thing about this particular ism, this particular discipline. So he says that um, by the mid 18th century, Orientalists were biblical scholars. Students of the Semitic languages, this is page number 51, Islamic specialists or because the Jesuits had opened up the new study of China, Sinologists. So basically, uh, you know, um, these were people who knew absolutely everything, right, about all of these places or at least that's how they projected themselves. And uh, because people like Antakil Duparon and Sir William Jones, uh, they were able to read Avastan and Sanskrit. So we've talked about William Jones at least. He was one of the first uh, sort of, you know, literary translators of Abhijan Shakuntalam and other Sanskrit classical texts. So in that sense, those were the doors which opened up, uh, you know, these kind of studies to these people and how they were, uh, you know, sort of, modified by and how they were channelized in newer disciplines and sciences like philology and ethnology and anthropology we talked about when we talked about the first section of this particular essay so I'm not going to go into that uh, but um, what Saeed is trying to say here is that um, you know there was in in the from the middle of the 18th century till about the middle of the 19th century People uh, were, um, uh, most of the major poets, essayists, philosophers, political scientists, they were all engaged in some form or the other with the Oriental. And then he goes on to talk about how there were two kinds of Orientalists. Uh, one was the professional enthusiast or the amateur enthusiast. And there were so many people 
who uh, you know um, who would take on this project of talking about the oriental without having a lot of um, you know without their study being validated by any kind of actual interaction with the orient so at the bottom of this particular paragraph on page number 51 side says a 19th century orientalist was therefore either a scholar and scholars could be sinologists islamists indo-europeanist or a gifted enthusiast hugo in le oriental orientals and hugo is victor hugo he was a very very famous writer goth in uh, westock uh, westocklicker divan goth is also one of the most famous writers he is the one who created the fast legend if you guys remember and both or both richard burton edward lane frederick schlegel and so on and so forth so he is saying that everybody was engaging with the orient in some form or the other and if you guys remember i don't know if um, you know if you guys studied um, byron's shaur um in 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 your course when you were studying the romantics but a lot of the romantics were also involved in um, you know in trying to sort of explore as well as decode de- deconstruct the mystique of the orient and uh, some of the aspects of the byronic hero the gloomy um, the, the you know the gloomy mysterious man with uh, this dark past and so on and so forth if you guys remember i think we had a discussion about the byronic hero a lot of the characteristics of the byronic hero for example were also coterminous with how the orient was understood so uh, you know the byronic heroes usually were dark they were swarthy much like the orientals and they had those kind of characteristics as well so the east was completely smitten by and they were completely um you know enchanted by the orientalists so there were a lot of people like victor hugo and goth who had no actual interaction with or no actual they did not do any study or they were not scholars of the orient and yet they wrote uh, huge tracts about it and um and and so he says that one of the most thorough um you know books of its kind about orientalism is jules mole's vanset ang the historia de etude oriental which is two volume log book of everything of note that took place in orientalism between 1840 and 1867 now technically if you look about you, you know you think about it this is just 27 years which in terms of historical times is really nothing but the expanse of information which according to said is found in this particular book it's a huge even the name is um you know very very huge but um what is happening here is that said says that because mal mol was a secretary of the societe uh, asiatique in paris which is basically the asiatic society and uh, if you remember william jones was also part of the asiatic society in uh, in calcutta so in that sense uh, mol was working for a similar um, this asiatic society in paris and he was a secretary so everything that was being published um he was sort of coming across it and he creates a sort of um, a bibliography of everything that was being done and said says that what's interesting is not only that in this 27 years he enters everything uh, which he calls the etude oriental etude is studying oriental is orient so the study of the orient if you just look at everything that he catalogs you will realize that the vast expanse of subjects which were being covered at you know in the, in the 19th century 
under the name of Orientalism. And he says that uh, the range of public material of interest, I'm on page number 52 now, um, is, is the range is just absolutely, he calls it awesome, it's awe-inspiring. Arabic innumerable Indian dialects, you guys know how many dialects there are in India. Hebrew, Pehlavi, Assyrian, Babylonian, Mo Mongolian, Chinese, Burmese, Mesopotamian, Javanese, and the list of philological works is, you know, and this is just philology, right? Philology is a study of language, so there are all of these different languages uh, about which philological works were, uh, you know, written. Uh, apart from that, uh, even if something was edited or something was translated, that was also sort of, uh, you know, that was also accounted for and that was also catalogued. But there were also disciplines like numismatics, which is a study of coins, anthropology, archaeology, sociology, economics, history, literary, cultural studies. <coughs> in Asiatic, North African civilization, ancient and modern. So in that sense, if you look at the range of interests that the Europeans had in the Orient, the ways in which they were actually collecting information, the ways in which they were analyzing the Orient was just, it was just, it was mind-boggling. And he does talk about, uh, you know, a little later on, Said does talk about how uh, the vast range and the, and, and you know, general, um, you know, length of the average book about Orientalism uh, is, uh, is, is uh, that kind of staggering intensity is sort of seconded only by the way in which the content was catalogued. And in that kind of almost obsessive cataloging of the Oriental, you know, cataloging their coins, their culture, their languages, creating categories for it, subdivisions for these kind of informations and quote-unquote knowledge for the Orient, what the Occident was doing is that they were taking this whole sort of geographical culture this whole chunk of the world and creating a sort of a knowledge base for it and through creating this sort of a knowledge base uh, according to the structure of European systems of knowledge. So philology, for example, is a discipline or it's a study which originates in Europe. How to study language. And, this, and the rules of this discipline are created by the Europeans. So what they do is they take the languages of Asia, they take the languages of North Africa, of the Orient, and then they categorize it, they analyze it, and then they judge it, and they, um, you know, they create a sort of analyses of it on the basis of the rules that they have created. So then what happens is, and, uh, and, and this happened quite a lot, is that they would take basic information and they would convert that information into knowledge. So, in a sense, the Orient was being converted from actual uh, organic dynamic life systems and peoples and cultures which kept on changing into categorized and archived knowledge systems. And these categorized and archived knowledge systems, because they were being created from the perspective of the West, they were almost never changing and Said attacks these knowledge systems for exactly these kind of shortcomings but only a little later on. So um, and Said then goes on to say that uh, and you know these kind of eclecticisms, these kind of studies of course had their blind spots. 
because most of the academic orientalists people who were interested in the scholarly scholarly study of the orient they were only interested in what what was called the classical period of whatever language or society it was that they were studying so not until quite late in the century with a single major exception of napoleon's institute d'egypte was much attention given to the academic study of the modern or actual and this is important the modern orient was the actual orient right studying the classical phases stages and time spans or of these different cultures and creating um an idea of these cultures imagine geographies or imagine characteristics of these cultures on the basis of something that happened 2000 years ago for example right that is basically what was happening in creating these knowledge systems about the orient so it it was only uh, according to said um you know much later that there was any engagement or academic study with the modern or actual orient moreover the orient studied was a textual universe by and large and impact uh, uh, by and large the impact of the orient was made through books and manuscripts not as in the impress of greece on the renaissance through mimetic artifacts like scripture and pottery so what happened and uh, said says this in another place he says that um, there were two ways of looking at this one was the high renaissance which occurred in europe and what happened in the high renaissance was that uh, you know the europeans um, sort of learned how to decode and translate greek and latin texts and then they started copying all of the greek and latin um you know poetic structures poetic metaphors poetic idioms and literature to create modern versions of these classical texts and classical idioms and hence the whole period was called neoclassicism but at the same time there was also a revival of or there was also an interest a very similar sort of an interest in the orient much like there was in the greek and the latin literature and cultures but it was not the same way in which the engagement with both of these different sort of you know cultural um structures was being made whereas the interaction of the european culture with the greek and latin culture was seen as part of their own history so it was seen as as a source of their uh, supremacy and their civilized and cultured lives and hence um, the interaction with that kind of a european renaissance was mimetic they copied these high um, you know uh, golden um, periods of greek and latin literature uh, but with the orient it was one of stark opposition and competition so when they uh, sort of discovered the orient and when they discovered um, through the works of you know uh, dupachil and uh, william jones who translated avestan and sanskrit when they discovered the antiquity of the orient it was as an opposition to the european rather than seeing themselves as being reflected or having the same kind of lineage so the interaction with both of these cultures um you know even in their own renaissance was completely different uh, and uh, the the text that i just read out um you know from the book is actually a continuation of the same idea so on page number 53 the first the first line actually i think to speak of a genre of orientalist writing as exemplified in the works of hugo goethe neville flaubert fitzgerald and the like 
and um, it, he says that it's perfectly correct um, when one says that um, uh, you know all of these people what they did was that um, uh, sorry the the work of all of these people was actually born out of this interaction between the east uh, between the east that is the orient and the west so then what happened when um, all of these people so many important writers were engaging with the orient was that a very free floating kind of a mythology of the orient and this is a term uh, this is a phrase that said uses and you should definitely use this he says that a very free floating kind of a mythology of the orient sort of it comes around, it comes about and it gets established and this free floating mythology has got almost nothing to do with the contemporary attitudes and uh, popular prejudices i mean it does derive from that but it also becomes sort of you know it becomes it, it becomes something which is beyond time and it becomes something that people just keep on adding to right if you remember that's that's the kind of free floating mythology of the orient that people like cromer and belfour also sort of derive from when they talk about the orient and when they say everybody knows that the orient of the egyptian uh, individual is a thief and he is irrational and he is emotional and he cannot be given any political sovereignty they use it as an easily accessible well known um kind of a um, you know stereotype and so you see the idea of the free floating mythology the free floating mythology of the orient is exactly this that the orient is lazy thieving uh, uncultured uncivilized uncivilizable and so on and so forth and everybody adds a little to it just like cromer and belfour do they derive from it and they use it manipulate it to you know suit their purposes whether that purpose is you know political uh, you know justification of political expansion like uh, belfour does or a justification for economic exploitation much like cromer and lord salisbury do so you know all of these are part of the same kind of a uh, orientalist tradition uh, so that is basically what uh, said is talking about and he says that nowadays you know of course the idea of calling oneself an orientalist has gone a little bit out of fashion um but still he says that at the time of his writing of the book in 1978 there was an oriental faculty at oxford and a department of oriental studies at princeton and these are huge big important universities these are the universities where the theoretical structures which are going to define the critic criticism and analysis of the whole world and the literature of the whole world and the socio political systems of the whole world they are decided at these kind of places and these kind of places are all right with having these kind of discriminatory labels associated with their um you know uh, with the departments with their disciplines and this there's such a naturalization with these kind of terms yet or, orientalism or being an orient scholar is not seen as being associated with something discriminatory it's a naturalized uh, you know sort of a distinction between two different cultures it's not seen as something which which can or which should be insulting and that is basically that kind of naturalization is what said has a problem with is a big 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 problem with that and um, so he he talks about hr gibbs and how hr gibbs um, who is according to him um, the greatest 
name in modern Anglo-American Islamic studies. Even he is okay with calling himself an Orientalist rather than Arabist rather than an Arabist. And he says that there is a distinction between the two terms. One is racist and the other one is not. One is discriminatory and the other one is associated with an actual geography, not with an imagined geography. An Arabist or an Arab were, you know, or, or Arabia in that sense was at one point in time an actual place. Arabs are an actual race of people. So that is a real identity. An Orient is an imagined identity. It's an Im- imagined geography. But somebody who is as well read as H.A.R. Gibbs, even he does not think that it's important to make that kind of distinction, which Said says is very, very telling, which says how discrimination can become, as I've already said, naturalized. So it's very important. And so he goes on to talk about, in, uh, you know, in the very next chapter, and uh, sorry, in the very next paragraph on page number 53, this is where you actually see um, that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of shift that uh, comes about in Said's, um, you know, framework in his epistemology in that sense. He does talk about a lot of um, uh, Foucauldian um, ideas and thematic structures, but he is clearly outrightly invoking Claude Lévi-Strauss here. And Strauss was, um, he is the founder of structuralism. And the distinction uh, that um, that Said himself draws in between, uh, you know, his uh, perspective as a Marxist and his perspective as a post-structuralist um, in the introduction, which we also talked about, is fairly clear. And this is an example of how he's drawing onto structuralism and post-structuralism, uh, but very clearly on Strauss's work as an anthropologist, right? Uh, so he says that... Um, um, despite the distraction of a great many vague desires, impulses and images, the mind seems persistently to formulate what Strauss is called a science of the concrete. And this science of the concrete basically means that Claude uh, Strauss says, uh, and he gives the example that uh, Strauss gives and he says, that a tribe would assign a definite place of function and significance to every leafy species in its immediate environment. And why this would happen, according to Strauss, is not because every leaf, not because the tribes are stupid enough to believe that every leaf is a deity or every leaf is evil or every leaf is good or every leaf actually has a morality in that sense of the term. But because, according to Strauss, that mind requires order. And this is, I'm in the last paragraph on page number 53. Right, an order is achieved by discriminating and taking note of everything, placing everything of which the mind is aware in a secure, refindable place, therefore giving things some role to play in the economy of objects and identities that make up an environment. And this is an idea, this is the epistemology in a certain sense that Sai transposes on the understanding of the Orient by the West. So he says, just like Strauss says, that the tribe, that tribes usually assign a function, a significance, a metaphor, a mythology to all plants, animals and natural elements around them so that they can clearly discriminate 
and they can clearly distinguish between different things around them it sort of makes them feel like they're in control because they've been able to categorize the nature around them they've been categorized they've been able to categorize the world around them in a similar fashion uh, throughout the rest of the chapter saeed is going to be able to uh, you know saeed is going yes he does he is able to do that but he definitely his object or his ambition is to similarly show how the west when they start looking at the orient which looks like an unknowable unknown alien object much like a lot of leaves and a lot of natural elements are for the tribe a lot of tribal people also have you know gods made out of winds out of thunder these are things that they can't control but by creating gods out of these elements gods that they can talk to gods that they can create a context for uh, you know within mythologies within stories gods that they can understand through the through these mythologies that they themselves create what they feel is that they create a connect with these kind of elements and they can control them control them in the sense that they worship them they placate them and they listen to them right so in that sense a certain engagement with the alien with the unknowable can take place and does take place according to strauss and saeed throughout this section is going to be able to uh, is <laughs> sorry is going to try to um, you know show how that's exactly how the west engages with the orient whenever the west comes across the orient and the orient seems to be alien they create these kind of archival distinctions and categories of the orient much like in the book about you know by mole that we were talking about just just 5 uh, 10 minutes ago i think in which the orient is uh, classified according to disciplines numismatics anthropology ethnology ethnography and so on and so forth so the orient which was alien at one point in time is created or it's classified in different western categories the mythology provided for the orient is provided by the west that is what the importance of this particular metaphor is and it's a very important metaphor for understanding how saeed is trying to create the argument of the orient right so um and on page number 54 <coughs> excuse me <coughs> On page number fifty-four, Said says, "There is always a measure of the purely arbitrary in the way the distinctions between things are seen, and when these distinctions go, values whose history, if one could unearth it completely, would probably show the same measure of arbitrariness." So, how these tribes create distinctions between one leaf, one flower, or diff- between different gods? and similarly the kind of distinctions that the west creates between different aspects of the orient different kinds of orients different geographies different cultures different practices of the orient are similarly fairly arbitrary and if you remember from our discussions about sasyos um you know uh, engagements with language and the logic of the you know of assigning a certain kind of signify signified with a certain kind of signifier language is also at the heart uh, language is also at at its heart and at, you know fundamentally the relationship between the signifier and the signified is also arbitrary you remember that so that 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 idea that um, language as well as culture and the values which are associated with different aspects of language different signifiers of language as well as culture 
are habitual and because they are only and only habitual rather than common sensical they are also arbitrary and that's a similar idea that is being talked about here so that's very important right so this is page number 54 that we're talking about and he goes on to say but if we agree that all things in history like history itself are made by men then we will appreciate how possible it is for many objects or places or times to be assigned roles and given meanings that acquire objective validity only after the assignments are made this is especially true of relatively uncommon things like foreigners mutants or abnormal behavior so he is saying that what happens the way in which these kind of you know uh, associative meanings um, are created is that certain kinds of values are associated with certain aspects of history certain aspects of culture or even certain people but the value that is associated with these assignments it is acquired after the assignment is made so for example if you remember the discussions that we had about structuralism uh, the fact that cat would designate a cat right that association is completely arbitrary right um or the fact that king is king right and king is a position of power so the association of the word the association of the signifier with the signified happens first but the value which is associated with the signifier and this is a slightly simplified actually this is a very very simplified uh, example but the value which is associated with the king and the power which is inherent in this kind of um, you know in this kind of a signifier that comes after the association between the primary signifier and signified has been made that happens at the level of culture right and culture is a second level of signifier i hope you guys remember that so those kind of things come after and that's exactly what said is talking about when he says that um you know um wait uh, we will um we will appreciate how possible it is for many objects or places or times to be assigned roles and given meanings that ob- acquire objective validity only after the assignments are made so um the foreigners or the aliens are called the others but what exactly does it mean to be that other is something that happens only after that assignment only after that connection only after that naming of the other has actually taken place and here he talks about a very interesting um, kind of an idea where he talks about this is the next um, this is the next paragraph right um he says um that and and the next example is fairly um easy so i'm not going to go into discussing it at length a group of people living in a few acres of land will set up boundaries between their land and its immediate surroundings and then they call whatever lies beyond their land the land of the barbarian now for this distinction between us and the other and the others being the barbarian whose land it is which lies beyond our shores right 
the others the barbarians so called they don't have to agree with this distinction but a certain kind of value has already been associated with them and god forbid if the people who have created that designation have more power whether it's discursive power or it's a religious power or it's economic power or it's sociological power god forbid they have more power then their assigning of the term of the other and barbarian to these people that is the one that is going to be held up that is the one that is going to be remembered so that is why it is important right and that's basically the kind of ideas that uh, the kind of um, imagined or imaginative geography that um, that said is talking about so please make a note of these uh, this uh, you know the part where the sentence begins with, uh, in the middle of the paragraph i use the word arbitrary here because imagine geography of the of the our land barbarian land variety does not require that the barbarians acknowledge the distinction and here you might think about the our land their land distinction as being a very small a small farmhouse with a small property but that but you know think about it at a national scale and this is exactly how nations also function everything that we do is better everything that somebody else does is problematic everybody that somebody else does even the best of the countries even best even they are not as good as the indians because they don't have our culture and so on and so forth right so uh, everybody makes those kind of distinctions and they are very arbitrary kind of distinctions it is enough for us to set up these boundaries in our own minds they become they accordingly and both their territory and their mentality are designated as different from ours and you see this is exactly how orientalism also functions and that's what said is trying to prove to a certain extent modern and primitive societies seem thus to derive a sense of their identities negatively and he says primitive societies specifically because most of the primitive or native societies do not really have access to um you know that kind the kind of discursive power that west has had throughout its history and that defines to a very large extent whose narrative gets uh you know sort of priority um in in this particular context and then he talks about uh, the french philosopher gaston bachelard uh, who wrote an analysis on the poetics of space and he talks um, and and he continues in the same vein he says the objective space of a house I'm, i'm on page number 55 its corners corridor cellar room is far less important than what poetically it is endowed with which is usually a quality with an imaginative or figurative value we can name a feel thus a house may be haunted or home like or prison like or magical so he says that spaces even geographical spaces really large spaces also they have an emotional and a rational sense and there's nothing um, and and it's rational only in 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 an emotional sense right it makes sense to us it might not make sense to anybody else but the emotional kind of a sense of a place uh, whether it's haunted home like prison like it's third world like india is to america or it's perfectly livable livable like like india is for us right all of those things are fairly arbitrary and they are fairly emotional in nature now just as an aside uh, i have a copy of i have soft copy of uh, bashalad's book i think it's also easily available on the internet those of you who have the time and who are inclined as much as such uh, you should definitely look at the book it's, it's a very interesting book
right so in that sense he goes on to say that space as well as time both space as well as time have that kind of um you know a specifically personal emotional kind of a sense so uh, the idea of long ago or beginning or end of time is all poetic as in it depends on who's talking about it and hence um you know and it, it it can also be contextualized to for the same word to mean very different things for the same time period to mean very very different things for example uh for the you know for the west uh when they talk about history they can talk about their much shorter history and they can still deem it to be much more important than the history of egypt which is far greater than theirs and they acknowledge that belfort acknowledges that um and yet they can contextualize it to say that even if their history is longest the quality of their history is 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 far worse than our our history and you know hence it's the quality that matters there it's that emotional um you know eccentricity or emotional um you know interpretation of how to understand spaces with as time and again somebody who has more power um will have more discursive um you know sort of uh, descriptive authority as well and that's basically what said is talking about uh he says there are such things as positive history and positive geography geography which in europe and us have impressive achievements to point to yet this is not to say that they know all there is to know nor more important is it to say that what they know has effectively dispelled the imaginative geographical and historical knowledge i have been considering this is on page number 55 please underline these lines so they're saying that uh what side is saying is that europe us uh it cannot be said that they know everything that there is to know about the orient and whatever they know whatever objective information they have about the orient that is also not changed the imaginative geography and the historical knowledge of the orient which according to said remains more or less a stable category so just knowing more doesn't mean that it changes how orientalism has been seen the imaginative geography here and the historical quote and quote historical knowledge is more important than actual knowledge and that is said and that is one of said's most important points here and then he comes to talking about um, you know uh, iliad um and uh, there is a reference there but it's a very small reference so i'm not going to go into that um but i am going to talk a little bit more about the actual um, you know quotation that he gives from aeschylus's the persians which is the earliest athenian play extant and the bacchae by euripides um i'm sorry the uh, the excerpt is from bacchae by euripides Aeschylus portrays uh, the sense of disaster overcoming the Persians when they learn that its armies led by King Xerxes have been destroyed by the Greeks. The chorus sings the following ode. I'm sorry, I have to contradict myself a second time. I think it's been uh, the lecture's been a little too long. This is Aeschylus I was right the first time. I'm sorry. Uh so the chorus sings now all Asia's land moans in emptiness. Xerxes led forth o oh, o oh, Xerxes destroyed wo wo Xerxes's plans have all miscarried in ships of the sea why did Darius then bring no harm to his men when he led them into battle that beloved leader of men from Susa so 
I mean, what the context of this is also not important, but um, very overtly and, you know, very obviously, Asia is, um, now all Asia's land moans in emptiness, emptiness, loss, disaster, all of that is the Orient, the, you know, uh, there's also a lament that in the past Asia fared better, it was at some point in time victorious over the Europe. But even as early as when Aeschylus is writing, that is a time which is in history. And that's also a time which has not been documented. So you have to remember that. It's very important. And after that, he goes on to talk about Euripides' you know, sort of Bacchae, which is the other um, uh, play that uh, Said was talking about. So um, they talk about... Um, and this is the bottom of page number 56 uh, Said says and I'm going to read this small bit out for you guys uh, there has been no escaping the additional historical detail that Euripides was surely affected by the new aspect that the Dionysiac cults must have assumed in the light of the foreign ecstatic religions of Bendis, Sibyl, Sabazius, Edenis and Isis which were introduced from Asia Minor and the Levant and swept through Piraeus and Athens during the frustrating and increasingly irrational years of the Peloponnesian War. And uh, just as an aside, Levant is a, um, it was um, in these times, uh, at the time when. Um, uh, Euripides and Aeschylus are writing. There's some parts of Asia Minor, so that's that's the Orient at that time. So all of these things which have been brought in from the Orient, which of course have very negative influences and very negative impact on Europe, that becomes the crux of how the Orient is understood here. And so, um, you know. Um, even as early as this, according to Saeed, and I'm on page number 57 now, he says that a line is drawn between two continents and um, Asia, is it is defeated, it is distant, and it's it's fairly similar to um, what, um, what is being talked, I mean, in both cases, um, you know, the way in which Asia is being talked about is fairly similar. It is a decrepit, defeated, distant, uh, once glorious but now destroyed and almost evil space it's uh, it's vacant um, and even when um, Asia speaks and when Aeschylus gives or personifies Asia uh, it is in the person of a Persian queen who Xerxes is mother and she is an old woman so even at the time when Aeschylus is writing Asia is an old person, was great at one point in time, but now not so much. It sort of lives. It has lived through its glorious days. And now it is the time of the, um, it is the time of Europe in a certain sense to shine. And you remember this is classical Greek, um, uh, you know, uh, theater. And um, and even so, it is Europe, it is a skylus which is articulating the Orient. And so, um you know, um, in that sense, um, Europe that uh, Europe which articulates the Orient, uh, Europe is not actually a puppet master, but he's sort of a genuine creator 
whose life-giving power represents, animates, constitutes an otherwise silent, dangerous space beyond the familiar boundaries. And isn't this very similar to what he was talking about when he was talking about Bachelard's poetics of space? The other or the neighbor or the foreign doesn't have to agree to how you define them as long as you can give them a voice and you can define them. It's perfectly fine. I am going to make another recording for the rest of the section. It's gone on longer than I really wanted to, but I hope that the lengthy notes 